Thank you. It's very good to be with you this morning. I look at you and I think you have, as a congregation, been very supportive of Heather and I for many, many years. And so some of you may not even know this, but you have been financially supporting us and our ministry for, well, more than 50 years. And uh, so I say thank you to all of you this morning. We're speaking this morning about why Jesus. Last Sunday morning, I was speaking to a Chinese church in Waterloo. And I said to them, you know, you are an answer to my parents' prayer. I remember my parents praying for China when I was a boy. How could they have imagined that there would be congregations of Chinese people here in Canada on a day like today? And they are worshiping. They are not saying, why Jesus? They are saying, we know why Jesus. So Chinese churches all over Canada are worshiping the Lord in partly in answer to my parents' prayer. So when we think about why Jesus, why? I want to think a little bit this morning about now and then. We're going to speak about, from the scripture of course, but I want to speak a little bit about now. What is going on around us? Because these words of Jesus were not spoken in a vacuum. They were spoken to real live people just like us. And I want to have a look around us this morning. Why Jesus now? In today's Canada, this is a serious question. Like why Jesus more than Buddha or Muhammad or anybody else? About 80% of the population of Canada do not attend any kind of a church on a regular basis. That leaves about 20%, maybe slightly less, who are attending a church of some kind in Canada on a regular basis. So Christianity in Canada is one of the religions. And I want to spend a little time this morning reviewing with you how this happened. John Cabot, who I was told was John Cabot, but was really an Italian, whose name was Giovanni Caboto in 1497, discovered Newfoundland. And he claimed it for God and for England. Jacques Cartier planted the cross and claimed the land for France. He says that we knelt down in the company of the Indians with our hands raised to the heavens, yielding our thanks to God. That was the beginning of Europeans coming to this part of the world. Europeans believed something quite different than what most of us believe in this room today. They believed that God was extending his kingdom through political nations as well as through the church and individuals. They thought of themselves as like the new Israel. Nations were to honor God and express the lordship of Christ by supporting the state church, Roman Catholic or Anglican or Episcopalian, and by making laws in accordance with the revelation from God. This is 
what they were expecting. This is how they were thinking. Society would be structured according to the will of God. This is really different than what our politicians and the way they're thinking and talking in our time. Facilitating discipleship in church ministry. But Christian nations also conducted wars like Israel, and there was not a lot of hesitation about this. Now, there were benefits to this arrangement. Most universities in Canada originally were established by their churches, either Roman Catholic or Anglican. Many hospitals originally established by the church. The judicial system, based on that Judeo-Christian ethic. The educational system, based on Christian belief, just like today. Churches favored. Clergy received benefits. And clergy in Canada still receive benefits to this day so that pastors get a big tax break from their income tax because of this heritage. And we receive income tax receipts to this day because churches were favored from this institution long ago. Canada developed as a Christian country. But there were troubling aspects of these Christian nations. There was a a contamination of faith and power, faith and political power. When those two things come together, it has been a deadly mix down through the years. There's the appearance of godliness with nominal Christianity and hypocrisy. Brutal wars, slavery. People were bought and sold in these, by people from these Christian nations. And in 1939, there was a ship turned away from Canada, the St. Louis, loaded with about 900 Jewish people trying to escape the Holocaust. And they were turned away by the government of Canada. And one of the ruling members of the cabinet at that time, we're not sure who, but one of them coined this phrase that when it comes to Jews, none is too many. And they were sent back to die. That's also a part of our heritage. The treatment of native peoples. At first there was accommodation made with them. Treaties established but most treaties broken. Annihilation, wipe them out. And then finally assimilation with residential schools which we are hearing about uh, lots in our time. So there were some troubling aspects to these Christian nations like Canada. But the 1800s brought a time of revival and diversity. The Reformation was changing everything in Europe those newly formed religious groups were coming to Canada. So there were Baptists and Moravians and Mennonites and all kinds of different groups began to come to this country. There were revivals with Wesley and Whitfield and Edwards and Moody. So there was a stirring in those years and uh, these Christian nations were abolishing slavery during those years. And the missionary era was exploding people from this country and 
the West in general, were going all around the world taking the gospel with them at enormous cost. The London Missionary Society was established in 1795. The Brethren, which is our heritage here, emerged in 1830 to 1850. The China Inland Mission, 1865. SIM started in 1893. And so these were movements of great sacrifice. So when those people were asking why Jesus, they had the answer. And they went all around the world. And today, instead of the 80-20% that we have in Canada, it's the other way. Many of the countries to which those missionaries went now have 80% Christians and 20% something else. So there has been an incredible uh, change in the last 100 or 130 years. There were new discoveries and major changes, and these have affected all of us. There was something that was called the modernist controversy uh, in about the 1930s. Is the Bible reliable? Are the words of this book actually reliable? Can we prove it that they are reliable? So this became the science of biblical interpretation, and a great deal of doubt was raised about that. Darwin's theory of evolution in 1859 Modernists, who we call liberals today, theologically liberal uh, scholars, accepted the new theories and discoveries, and fundamentalists, now mostly called evangelicals, did not accept. So this was a big division that took place uh, among churches here in Canada in those years. There was something called the social gospel, which uh, some of us will remember this being the subject of a lot of conversation. Uh, and so the question is, is it word and deed? The missionaries that we sent all around the world practiced word and deed. They started schools and hospitals, and they preached the word of God. Now the question was, is it word and deed together, or is it deeds primarily? So this became a big source of discussion uh, during these years. Multiculturalism emerged in 1971 to 1988, and this is a policy where our elected government blurred the, the culture and religion so that religion became to be seen as a part of culture. So we are a multicultural nation, we welcome people, we have this is a great benefit to people. There are millions of people all around the world who would be dying to sit in a room like this today. So they are refugees, they are in camps. Every week, every single week, I'm hearing from somebody, can you help my friends come to Canada? They are in a refugee camp. They're in Turkey. They're in Sudan. And uh, I was in Sudan in... Uh, March, and just saw huge numbers of people cramped into these tents. So little hope for them that they could ever be in a country in a wealthy part of Canada like we are living in right here today. So this whole question about people from different faiths and cultures coming to Canada being accepted, being tolerated, being received and welcomed, 
And religion in those days was not really talked about separately from culture, just kind of as a part of culture. So when we became multicultural, Christianity became one of the religions in Canada, period. So that's something that uh, we are experiencing today. We're welcoming people from all around the world, which is a good thing. Uh, many are coming to faith in Christ here. So when we are talking about why Jesus, that message is coming to people in our country uh, for the first time for many. The, the, a massive change took place in the 1960s with a huge anti-authority uh, attitude and the sexual revolution of the 60s. This had a massive impact. I remember these days uh, very well. And, uh, and then gender issues. The charter was amended in uh, 1996 to 2000 to establish the rights of homosexual people in Canada. Same-sex marriage approved in 2005. Discrimination against gender identity or expression prohibited in 2017. So we are wrestling now because we are a minority, a minority opinion, because we are, we are just one of the religions as Christians in Canada. We can't claim uh, status or authority or rights because we have become one of the religions. Now this is a huge challenge to us. Many of us have been a part of sending missionaries to other parts of the world where people, those missionaries had to prepare to go because they were expecting it to be different there. We weren't expecting to have to become missionaries in our own country. And many of us are just not prepared. And we're saying, why can't it be like it used to be? And that's a good enough question. But we are now in a place where we are called to answer the question about why Jesus in a completely different way than my parents did. We're living at a time when we are unprepared and not even wanting to have to think or act like missionaries in Canada. But that is the case. And it's necessary for us to reconsider our place. When we are coming together like this, it's a very safe thing for us to say, why Jesus? But the minute we step outside of this room, and the minute we go, uh, we just heard this morning, Chloe was saying that she was studying psychology these last four years. Well, this is a whole different world. I can tell you that she was not hearing anything like this in those classes. So things have changed massively around us. There are three broad, and I'm talking generally this morning, streams of churches in Canada. There's the Roman Catholic and Orthodox churches, mainline Protestant churches, Anglican, Lutheran, Presbyterian, United, some Mennonites and evangelical churches, Baptist, Pentecostals, Alliance, Salvation Army, Brethren, or Vision Ministries, Canada, some Mennonites here. But approximately the same number of people attend church in one of those three streams on any given Sunday. So they are the 20%. Mark Knoll says in his book 
that as late as 1960, as just after the Second World War, a full 67% of Canadians responded positively to the question, did you attend worship in the last week? In English-speaking Canada, 67% said yes. And in Quebec, 90%. That's from 1946, the year I was born. From then until now, the picture has changed dramatically. I want us to think this morning about why Jesus, in our own time, in the days when Jesus was on planet Earth, we're told in this passage that the majority would not believe. Verse 37 of chapter 12. Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. That was the majority. They had seen the miracles, and I think, just like all of you, wouldn't it be handy if we had some massive miracles to just convince people on the spot? Like, if you saw it yourself, don't you think you would believe? But here, people actually saw these things happening, and they would not. It's as if John is astonished. They saw it, and they wouldn't. Yet some did. But then it says that among those who did, there were others who were kind of in between. They, they believed, but they said they wouldn't come out in the open because they feared the Jews. They feared the leadership of the Jews. It tells us later in verse uh, 42 and 43. Hostility against Jesus was rising. So in Jesus' lifetime, in his ministry, there was a time when his popularity rose like this and then began to decline. And we are right at the end of that time. So that at the earliest part of this chapter, it says that this was just a few days before Passover. So Jesus' death was imminent. It was just around the corner. Their attitude, John says, you know what? We shouldn't have been surprised. Because all of this was predicted precisely by Isaiah the prophet, verse 38. In fact, it says they couldn't believe, and I've read this verse so many times, and I can't help whenever I read it still, I think I have to read it again. Because it says here that in verses 39 and 40, for this reason they could not, they went from would not to could not. could not believe because, as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn, and I would heal them. This idea of God hardening the heart is a kind of a Whenever I read this, I think, just a minute, does it really say that? That God hardened their hearts. 
And this is a concept that appears a number of times throughout scripture, but the most famous one is Pharaoh, uh, the Pharaoh of Egypt. And it says that God hardened his heart. Now, what I'm saying here is that God ratified their hardness. He did it with Pharaoh. Now, Pharaoh already was a murderer who was responsible for getting all of those Jewish babies thrown in the river and drowning them. This was not a nice guy. He already had a hard heart. But it says that God hardened his heart. He made it even harder. Why? So that all the nations would know. If he was just a little stubborn, only a few people around Egypt would take note of it. (laughs) But because he already had a hard, murderous heart, God, it says, hardened his heart further, made it like hardened in a bizarre kind of way. So that after all of these 10 plagues and the crossing of the Red Sea, all the world would know. And when you read the later books of the Old Testament, you discover that 400 years later, people still were talking about this. People knew that this had happened, how these Israelites had come out of Egypt. God hardened their heart. He ratified the decision that they had already made. And he says here, the same thing has happened. Jesus was there, the miracles, the blind man, Lazarus was dead. Just a short time before this. And after he was raised from the dead, the Jewish leaders, just in a few verses prior to this, said, you know what? We're going to have to kill him too. Let's wipe out Lazarus also because too many people are getting caught up with the fact this man was dead and is alive. So they would not believe it was a decision they had made and now it says he hardened their hearts for his own purpose and we're going to come to that in a second. Isaiah saw all of this coming from a great distance. And so here we are hundreds of years before Isaiah prophesied all of these things that would happen. Now there's a little piece here that I want to touch on. It says that Jesus hid himself. Uh, And this is something that kind of takes us by surprise. Uh, Where are we? It came in verse 20 where some Greeks came and they said, we would like to see Jesus. I don't mean that they would want to see him with their eyes, because everybody could see him. They wanted to talk with him. They wanted to uh, connect with him in that way. And it says in verse 36 that when he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. You can't help but be kind of surprised by this verse. Why did he do that? Uh, he hid himself from them. You know, it's immediately after this that Jesus said, after it says that he hid himself from them, it says that the hour has come. It was, although the Jewish people were resisting him and would not and could not believe and were preparing to kill him, the word is getting out and the Greeks were coming. 
It was these Greeks, these people from other nations who were going to become the object of Jesus' love and passion. And they were beginning to come. When it says that he hid himself, there's one other occasion in John where it says that Jesus hid himself. It was the day when people took up rocks to stone him. And it says in that same passage that Jesus hid himself. It's because the time was not right. You, get, you realize as you're reading through the gospel that these things were not just happening to Jesus, but that he himself was in charge of what he was doing and when things were going to happen. When these Greeks came, it was an indication that the nation, these were the nations that Jesus would die for. Now they're starting to come. And he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be lifted up. And he says, even if a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it will bear much fruit. That was about to happen. But it was going to happen on Jesus' terms and in his timing, not, on any other, um, not for any other reason or purpose. The hour has come. And in the 13th chapter, it says, Jesus knew that his time had come. This is all about timing the right timing, that the Jesus that we speak about was not the victim of those Jewish leaders, but he had come as the savior of the world. He is operating on his own time. Hid himself, we think, because his hour had not quite come, but it was very close. Why Jesus? I'm interested in verse 35. Then Jesus told them, you're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in the dark does not know where he is going. Put your trust in the light while you have it so that you may become sons of light. This is the practical reason about the why Jesus. So that you know how to walk in the dark. Again, when Chloe was talking, she said that these last four years have been challenging. It's important for us to know how to walk in the dark. Here, we all come together, we pray, we're together, we're here as brothers and sisters and followers of Jesus. But when we leave here, or even here, there are things that are happening in our lives that are expressions of darkness. And Jesus said, walk in the light. Walk with me, draw near, so you know how to walk in the darkness. Every single one of us have elements of darkness that creep into our life. Could have been this morning, could have been last night, could be right now. Why Jesus? So that you know how to walk in the dark. There's a lot of darkness around us. Some of it is inside us. So draw near to him. Why Jesus? So you know how to walk in the dark. 
This is not a small thing. This is the whole of the Christian life is encapsulated here because it's important for us when we gather like this that we are renewed, encouraged, we talk to one another, we realize we're not alone, and we come together to worship the one who was crucified. That's what we're doing here. We are worshiping, we're singing, we're gathering together to honor one who was crucified like a criminal, and we are worshiping him. Why Jesus? So that you know how to walk in the dark. Why Jesus? Because he was sent by God, represents God, and is God. He is not like any other. There is no other religious leader who said, he who sent me, I am the same as the one who sent me. The one who created the heavens and the earth, I'm him. This is a completely unique thing in the whole history of the world that somebody would come along and claim that they are the creator of heaven and earth walking around like a regular person among us. That is highly unusual. He was sent by God, represents God, and is God, verses 44 and 45. Then Jesus cried out. So this is, these are the last words of Jesus before he secludes himself with his disciples. So in the next chapter, now it's just a small group preparing because the next day crucifixion is coming. So here he says, he cried out to the crowd last time, when a man believes in me, he does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. When he looks at me, he sees the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in the darkness. This is the one that we worship. When we talk about why Jesus, it's because this Jesus is completely different than anybody else. It's a dramatic thing to say that I believe in Jesus, the Christ, who is God, came walking around among us and was crucified and raised from the dead and I believe that and I am a follower of his. I'm following him so I know how to walk in the darkness. When we are saying why Jesus, it's a mouthful that we are speaking and we're saying this is the one that we are following. Then he said something that may take us by surprise. For he says, he judges no one. Verse 36. Verse 47. As for the person who hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world but to save it. There is a judge. For the one who rejects me and does not accept my words that every word which I spoke will condemn him on the last day. I'm interested that he said, at this very last public preaching, he said, he judges no one. This is an important message for us to declare to people around us because 
they think that we are a judgmental bunch. That we know right and wrong. We know who's right and who's wrong. But Jesus said here that he judges no one because he came into the world to save it. It's important for us to elevate this message because people have got the wrong impression about us. And when we are acting like missionaries in Canada, it's important that we are able to declare that ours is a message of deliverance and hope and light, not a message of condemnation and judgment. Now he does go on to say there is such a thing as judgment. He's not denying that. But it's important for us as we are declaring why Jesus that we are also declaring this word which he says, I didn't come here to judge. He came to save. And he said, because the words, the command that we speak, verses 49 and 50, is eternal life, or leads, the NIV says, leads to eternal life. Verses 49 and 50. Not speak own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say what to say and how to say it. I know that this command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. The Father and the Son are working together. The Father, the Son, and we'll hear more about the Holy Spirit in the coming chapters. But here he's saying, we are working together. This is the command, not the command in the sense of Old Testament commands, but the command in the sense, the word of God. This is the word that leads to eternal life. We are declaring, when we say, why Jesus? We're also declaring that this same Jesus has the words of eternal life. So that when we face death, we are not facing death alone, but because of Jesus, why Jesus? These are the words of eternal life. I just want us to understand how huge the reply is to the question of why Jesus? I am the light of the world, he said in chapter 8. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And Ken Pilcher said, when darkness surrounds you, turn on the light. <laughs> now, it's not like we can turn Jesus on, but we can turn to him. And so I want to say to you that whatever is happening in your life, I want you to hear me saying this morning, Turn to the light. The answer may not be simple. There may be times when you will cry the whole night, wondering, where is the light? But it's in those times of crying out. It's in... It's in those times of reaching out to him and saying, Jesus, where are you? On Sunday morning, Gord said, why Jesus? And it seemed so clear, but tonight, it's not the same. 
For each of us, it's important to know and understand that learning how to walk in the dark is not that simple. But it's vital. The question, why Jesus, and the answers that come to us today. He is the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. There may be some times when you will be reaching and scraping for the light and wanting to turn to the light. It's worth it. It's worth it. Jesus said, I didn't come to judge you. There is a judgment coming, yes, but that's not why I came. I came that you would have light and that you would learn to walk in the light and at the end of your days of walking, you would still be walking because it's eternal. Amen. Shall we pray? Living God, we stand in your presence this morning. Thank you for sending your Son to be the light of the world. Thank you for his invitation to follow in his steps, his invitation to believe and to trust. Father, thank you for your great mercy. Thank you for your enormous goodness and patience with us. Father, would you breathe on us today the Holy Spirit. Father, you know us individually. Would you move in our hearts and our minds? May it be that as we bless your name, hear our prayer as a beautiful fragrance. For some who have questions or are troubled today, Father, would you meet them? Thank you for the privilege that we have of coming together, of praising your holy name, of coming together as your people, coming together to find hope and strength. I commit each person here to your gracious care today. In the name of Jesus. Amen. So if you're here today and you have a question that is bugging you or if you would like prayer, I'm just going to wait at the front and you're welcome to come and talk to me. And uh, I'm going to wait for you here for a little while. Thank you.